Wednesday night, we're gonna continue through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and we'd love to have you join us either live here or online. So uh, that'll be Wednesday at seven. But we draw a smaller text from our upcoming Wednesday study. So uh, we're gonna take that from Mark chapter three, and we're gonna begin in verse 13. Mark three thirteen. And there it says, and he, Jesus, goeth up into a mountain and called unto him whom he would. And they came unto him and he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and have power to heal sickness and to cast out devils. And Simon, he surnamed Peter and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, which he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. And they went into an house. Here we see the selection of Jesus' 12. Isn't it interesting that he chose these particular disciples? I'm always amazed as I think about who Jesus could have chosen. Some would argue people that he probably should have chosen, especially in comparison to who he actually did choose. You know, when the president of the United States gets into office, one of the things we always watch, if you've been around long enough, you realize it's interesting to see who he chooses for his cabinet so that uh, his advisors and his team, because the team around the president oftentimes is a big indication of where the administration will go. This current president, no exception. By the way, you should feel very much at peace now because they figured out you know, this AI thing where everybody's worried about AI taking over the world. The Biden administration took care of that. We have a new AI czar who's gonna really keep an eye on it. Um, Kamala Harris is, is the new AI czar. Why are you laughing? I'm just telling you. Um, uh, it does make one a little nervous uh, because AI is something that is, uh, did you hear that a chat a a AGP just uh, passed the bar exam by itself uh, where it has to write essays and all kinds of, things. kind of an amazing thing. But um, there's some interesting things about choosing the right leadership around you. And, and you think about who Jesus chose and why did he choose these particular people? If I were you know, think about it. God becomes a man, lives among us. And he says, man, I'm gonna start my church age. And how do you get the church age underway? Man, who do you choose? Well, if you ask me, I would have chose, first of all, somebody who was financially savvy. You know, you need somebody who knows finances because man, without money, you can't do what you need to do, right? I mean, uh, so, you know, what do you do? You find somebody who knows what they're doing. Uh, financial genius, that's what you need. But not only financial genius, you also need a face. Somebody who's easy on the eyes and good with, you know, kind of a silver tongue and able to, you know, uh, be your PR and, and give the, you know, optics a better look. Uh, you definitely need a PR person, a face, uh, you know, maybe a social media influencer or someone who can get your name out there. That's, that's who I would choose. But also you need a posse. Man, somebody who can take good care of you security-wise because, man, you're living in Galilee and Jerusalem and those are hot times. You gotta have a, a team. 
Speaking of the White House and teams, um, did you know during the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump administration, there was a chef in the White House. Do you guys know who Andre Rush is in the White House? He was the head chef in the White House. I don't know why most more people didn't know about this guy, but this was the, the chef of the White House for those administrations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would choose him to be part of my team. Because man, the guy can cook, but he could also beat you up. Yeah, you know, this is, this is the dude right here. Um, but, um, but all that to say, uh, Jesus chose not, not the people I would have chose. Uh, you know, you need a consulting group, somebody who knows religion and theology, maybe look in the seminaries, oh, probably not, but where do you find the religious, theologically astute people? Because man, if you're starting a church, you need theology and doctrine. But Jesus didn't choose guys. They didn't have a clue about just about anything. Um, who would you have picked? You know, would you, would you have chosen, would you have chosen Peter? Who has a foot-shaped mouth? <laughs> always putting his foot in his mouth. He's always saying stuff that gets him into trouble. Jesus chose him. Um, remember there when, you know, Jesus was being transfigured with Moses and Elijah and, and Peter, the Bible says, not knowing what to say, he said, and they said, Lord, it's good for us to be able to let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses. And then the sky opened up and said, zip it, Pete. Well, that's a paraphrase. This is my beloved son, hear ye him. That's God booming from heaven. Do you think Peter was like, oops, probably shouldn't have said anything. Or would you have chosen James and John? Um, here in our text, it says that the Lord surnamed them Boanerges. What's Boanerges? Well, it means sons of thunder. Why did Jesus call uh, James and John, the sons of thunder. Well, they were short-fused. They brought the boom, but not in a good way. Um, in fact, do you remember in Luke chapter nine, verses 51 through 56, where Jesus was sort of snubbed by the crowd. And so J James and John said, Jesus, bring fire down from heaven and fry them all. That, that's two of his disciples that are supposed to love people and stuff. Burn them, Lord chose James and John. And he also, would you have chosen, um, you know, Matthew? Um, I, wouldn't, I would have not chosen Matthew because he was, well, he was what is called a publican. If you were here Wednesday night, what does a publican mean? Tax collector, that's just the word. See, a lot of people get this mixed up when you see this phrase in a while, and there were publicans and sinners and the Democrats are like, at least we weren't there. No, it's not Republican, it's publican. It's just another name for tax collector. Now question, why were tax collectors always coupled with sinners? There were publicans and sinners. Well, here's why. The tax collectors, everybody hated them. Uh, the Jews really hated them because they were, tax collectors were Jews who were hired by the Romans to tax the people, the Jews, and they would often overtax them, pocket the extra money and give the money to the Romans. And so the, the tax collectors were wealthy, filthy rich, and yet they did it by dishonest gain. The Romans hated them because they had to work with these Jews to collect taxes and they were more of a nuisance, but they were a necessity. So the Romans hated the tax collectors and the Jews hated the tax collectors. Meanwhile, who does the tax collector have for friends? Because they're wealthy, they have nice homes, they have big parties at their houses. Who comes? Well, uh, the, the answer, the prostitutes the ripoff artists, the thieves, and the scoundrels of town, everybody who everybody already hated. So the people who were hated, they all hung out together, the publicans and the sinners. And we even see Matthew having parties at his house with publicans and sinners. 
Jesus chose that guy that everybody hated. Would you have chosen Simon the Canaanite as he's called here? Better translated, Simon the Zealot. Who is Simon the Zealot? He was the guy, well, a zealot was the opposite of a tax collector. The zealot was a guy who would want to kill the tax collector. Um, that, that was kind of his thing. The zealots were, wanted to violently overthrow Rome. The Romans had their iron fist on Israel for almost 100 years by this time. And the zealots had risen and they, they were trying to build sort of an insurgent army to come and kind of hassle or eventually they hoped to wipe out the Roman empire. And Jesus said, yeah, I want one of those guys, a zealot. Can you imagine having the tax collector who was working with the Romans and a zealot who wanted to kill the Romans and the tax collector? I wonder if Matthew kind of slept with one eye open the whole time around the disciples because Simon the zealot was part of the team. Would you have chosen Thomas who was famous for doubting? I think he gets somewhat of a bad rap for this, but there are a couple instances where Thomas was doubting Thomas. He doubted that Jesus had risen from the dead. When all the other disciples believed it, he says, I'll believe it when I can see it, when I can put my finger in the hole that's in his hand, then I'll know. And all of a sudden, bling, Jesus shows up and says, here, Thomas, put your finger in the hole of my hand. And Thomas, it'd be better for you to believe without seeing. Now, we could all say, oh, that's doubting Thomas, but how would you have done? But would you have chosen doubting Thomas as one of your disciples? Or what about James, the son of Alphaeus? Who is that? Well, some of your Bibles call him James the Less or James the Younger. Which one is he, Alpheus, Younger, or Less? Well, the truth is we really don't know much about James the Less. Most scholars believe he's called the Less because he was probably younger than the other James. So they called him James the Younger or Less, that he had less years. That's why they called him that. Well, what else do we know about James the Less? Less? We don't know anything about him. Would you have chosen a disciple that had no influence or did nothing? Jesus did. Um, what about, you know, the one guy you might have chosen is there was a guy who's had sort of a title um, before. When you hear the name Judas Iscariot, oh, now that would have used, oh, now there's a guy you can work with. Because he was one who already, what's, what's Judas? Why does his name always have the, the, the name Iscariot? Was he Mr. Iscariot, Mr. Judas Iscariot? That wasn't his last name. The word Iscariot links him to being a treasurer. He was the money guy. He was of the disciples, the one who would handle the money. Well, as it turns out, the one guy that was probably qualified for the team, he ends up ripping off the money and ultimately betraying Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. Why would Jesus have chosen these people? Now, here's where we get into something that we start getting into that's doctrinally important for you to understand about the Bible. And it has to do with the doctrine of election. Here in our text, verse 13, it says there in verse 13, Jesus went to a mountain and called unto him whom he would. Question, does Jesus have the right to choose whoever he wants? Yeah, Jesus can choose whatever disciples he wants and he chose these guys. I kind of look at him and go, I don't know if I would have chosen those guys, but he can choose whoever he wants. Why? Why can Jesus choose whoever? Well, you know, some of you would say, well, he, it's his team, it's his disciples. Well, as it turns out, he's also God and God can choose whoever he wants, anytime he wants, wherever he wants. This is the doctrine of election. The Bible teaches that God chooses people based on his own purpose, his own prerogative, and his desire to show grace to undeserving sinners like us. 
God chooses who he wants. This is what this reminds me of is, is the greater doctrine of election that we've been, if you're a Christian, if you've accepted Christ, God chose you. In fact, the Bible tells us this, this old doctrine of election. And there's all these fancy doctrinal words that we get all up in a tizzy about. You know, election, predestination, uh, that we were adopted sons and daughters of God. How does this work out? Well, Ephesians chapter one, you can jot this down in your notes if you wish, but Ephesians chapter one, verses three through six um, says this, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, it says here that he hath chosen us. Uh, Now, this is cool because um, what has he chosen us for or why? It says in verse four, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Question, if you're holy, declared holy, and without blame before the Lord in love, are you saved? Uh Uh-oh, you're making me real nervous. (laughs) 10 o'clockers, let me ask that again. If you're declared holy without blame before God in love, are you saved? Thank you, yes. Which means you're chosen. If you've accepted Christ and you've been forgiven of your sins, you're, you're saved and you've been chosen by God. And when did he choose you? Shocking before the foundation of the world. That's what the scripture says. We've been chosen in him before the foundation, before the world was even created. God had you in mind and already knew that you were going to be chosen. Um, Now, some people really don't like that because you say, well, Brett, um, I accepted Jesus and I made a choice to believe. And, And so did you choose him or did he choose you? Which one? The answer, yes. But Brett, if he chose me, whether I was gonna be saved or not saved before the foundation of the earth, then my, my say really doesn't have any effect. Well, that's, that's actually not true. And I'll tell you why, the Bible tells us it's not true. But the math doesn't work out on that, Brett. So what? Um, do you know that God is bigger than our math? God is so much bigger. And if God were small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. And the fact that God says, I already knew who was gonna be saved, but I still require you to make a decision and choose me. Well, which one is it? Well, it's both. And the Lord works that out. And I'll show you a little bit how that works. He says, according as he hath chosen us um, to be holy with him. But then verse five, it says, then having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself, to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Here we see that we've been predestinated. What's predestination? It means that he knows where you're going and he already had that all planned out. He's got, he knows that you're chosen, he chose you, and then he predetermined where you were gonna end up, heaven or hell. And then it says, but to us, we're also adopted sons and daughters. I love the doctrine of adoption because it's part of this choosing. It's like the two sons, one was adopted, one was the biological son, and they were standing in the backyard playing, and then the, the biological son said, you, you're adopted. He said, I was, I'm, I'm of the true bloodline of mom and dad, you were adopted. And the, the little adopted boy looked at him and sort of smiled and said, yeah, they were stuck with you, but they chose me. <laughs> uh, that's us. We are you know, orphaned because of our sin and God says, I'm going to choose you and bring you in as adopted children by Jesus Christ 
to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, um, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So this is the key. Uh, the doctrine of election has been tough. And he chose us before the foundations of the world. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, I'm glad he chose me before I was alive because if he were to choose me after I was alive, he may not have chosen me at all. He's sort of saying that jokingly because the Lord knew all things, even knowing Charles Haddon Spurgeon would be a sinner like all of us, he still chose him before the foundations of the world. And if you call yourself a Christian, if you've accepted Christ and you believe in Jesus and, and you're saved, then you have been chosen by God. Um, how do you know if you've been chosen by God or not? Does anybody in here get worried? I don't know if I'm chosen, am I chosen? You know that if you've accepted Jesus Christ, he chose you. Well, I don't know if, well, let's find out. If you, all you have to do is say, okay, I, I realize I'm a sinner and I believe that God loves me so much that he sent his son and died on the cross and I'm gonna accept the work of the cross and believe in Jesus. Well, guess what? You're chosen. Yeah, but I don't like that. And I, don't, I think that's weird to think that, you, you know, this and that Jesus died for me. Well, then you're probably not chosen. Like you really have to kind of understand God knows what he's doing and God is not restricted by our laws. Are you chosen? Well then, Brett, uh, see, here's the thing. There's, they've been battling this argument, God's sovereignty versus human free will. And they've been arguing for hundreds of years, the Arminianists and the Calvinists. One thing that I would just caution you as a guy who goes through the Bible verse by verse, I'm not some intellectual giant. And there are intellectual giants who argue about these things uh, to the nth degree, but they've been arguing Calvinism and Arminianism for a long time. Whenever there's a word that's not in the Bible, you kind of have to be careful a little bit. Um, is Calvinism a biblical term? No, John Calvin was a dude. Um, and Calvinism and Arminianism have, are, are basically arguing a few separate things, but one of the main things is the Calvinist is God is sovereign and he chose you and elected you. Do I believe that? Yes. But the Arminia says, well, wait a minute. We believe that you choose him, that you have to make a decision. It's human responsibility. That's the thing. It's all about human responsibility. So the Arminian says it's all about that. Well, I can show you scriptures like that too. See, verse three through six of Ephesians one that I'm showing you right here, this is more of the, wow, he, God is sovereign. He's gonna choose before the foundation of the world. You're already predestinated. God's already figured it out. That's his sovereignty. But at the same time, the Bible tells us like this verse I share all the time, Romans chapter 10, verse nine and 10, where it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes to righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Does that strike you as something you're responsible to do? You're supposed to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. That's, that's you, human responsibility. And the Bible teaches that too. It's so funny if an Arminianist comes up and says, do you believe in Arminianism and do you believe it? And I can say, yeah, and I could show, I could probably defend that better than they can in a lot of cases, because it's not hard. But if a Calvinist comes up to me, Brad, are you a Calvinist? Can you defend Calvinism? Of course, I'll show you all kinds of great scriptures. But could it be that we're creating a false dilemma by arguing one way or the other? Because I think that God is so much bigger than our puny little restrictions of time and space and what we know and what we don't know because God is all infinite, all powerful, outside of time and space and dimension. Like God is not restricted to our little, well, it's gotta be this way or that way. And, and, and as it turns out, God says in his word, yes, I chose you before the foundation of the earth and yes, you still need to choose me. And they don't cancel one or the other out. 
Usually when Christians argue about something for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, we're kind of missing the point. H.A. Ironside talked about this in sort of the same way, saying that, um, you know, were you chosen or did you, or did you choose? Which one? And he talks about, they call it Ironside's door. He talks about walking down a corridor and there's a doorway and it says on the door, all who wish may enter. So man, this guy's got a choice. Do you walk in the door? You smell a fragrance of food and delightful smells of aromas of cooking. And, and you think, man, I'd like to go into that door. And it says, all who wish me, so I'm going to choose to walk in the door. So the guy walks in Ironside's door and inside there's a beautiful banquet room and there's a huge table and place settings and food. And there's people seated at the table, but there's an empty chair and you walk up to that empty chair and there your name is on that. It was already predestined that you were gonna be sitting there, but you didn't know it. You chose to go in, but it was already predetermined that you'd be there. I know that's not the perfect example, but it is an example that I've found helpful. Um, maybe this one's good. I, I, I like this one, like, because you know, many of you travel, you go to the airport and give your boarding pass and you get on, on a plane. Um, some have argued that election is God deciding who gets on the plane bound for heaven. That's where election comes in. Predestination is his charting the route the plane will take, the schedule, the accommodations, uh, both during and after the flight, and each passenger has their safety. With God as the pilot of the plane and the plane itself, all who board the plane will, in fact, make it to heaven. So predestination means God makes himself sure, um, makes sure that the, the elect actually gets on board the plane and makes it to their destination. The response of faith in Christ, like if you accept Christ, is like checking into the gate with your boarding pass. That's when you say, I choose to get on board. And you take your boarding pass, which is the grace of God. God giving you the free ticket. How did he do that? He paid your price of sin on the cross. So you have your boarding pass. If you so wish, you can take that free gift of salvation, your boarding pass, and get on board. The gospel call, when people preach the gospel, in contrast, is like the advertising for the trip. Advertising that you can go on this plane to not the Bahamas, but to heaven. The advertising for the trip. The church is commissioned, you and I as Christians are commissioned to get the whole world that information, the advertising. Unfortunately, a lot of people treat it as junk mail and say, yeah, whatever, and they throw it in the trash. That's the sad truth. Some people reject the free gift, the free boarding pass. But those to whom God has elected to salvation, he also moves to accept his free offer. Free offer. And that's why the Bible says this, many are called, but what? Few are chosen. Many are called. The, the advertising has been out there to the whole world that they be saved and repent and get on board with the heaven plane. But many are called, but few are actually chosen. Why did Jesus pick these men? And why did he pick us? If you're a chosen Christian, have you ever wondered that? Why did Jesus choose you? If you're still wondering, am I chosen? Have I been chosen by God? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll we can check that out today. We'll do that in a minute. But before that, why did he choose the disciples? I think this will help us understand election as we look at these 12 that he chose here in the Gospel of Mark. And there's sort of considerations I'd like to think through. Number one, notice that Jesus, I believe, one of the reasons he chose them is he saw them in their potential. He didn't look at who they were, he knew who they would eventually be. 
See, you and I, we know Peter, James, and John. We know that those guys ended up being great apostles who God used mightily. But when we see them in the gospels, we think, wow, they're kind of bumbling fools. The disciples, like, why did he choose them? They're all goofballs, man. They don't even get it. They don't, even when Jesus plainly tells them what's happening, they still don't get it. And it reminds me of you and me. Why did Jesus choose these bumbling, foolish disciples who never seemed to get it, even when he directly spoke the word to them? I think Jesus has the ability to see them in their potential. Um, Jesus knew exactly what would be needed to spread the gospel, and these would be just what the, the Lord would order. I'm reminded of their foolishness. You know, Jesus, do you remember how many times when we were in the gospel of Matthew, how many times Jesus told the disciples, okay, you guys, here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna go to Jerusalem. They're gonna hate me, despise me, whip me with the whip, hang me on a cross and crucify me. But, but guys, three days later, I will raise up from the grave. Do you guys got this? They're like, oh, uh, whatever. We don't really wanna hear the la, 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 la. Remember that? We, when you went through the gospel of Matthew, they just didn't acknowledge that. But they should have known, but they didn't. So these goofy, foolish disciples, and I say this, you know, for a purpose, but because we're the same, we see them in John chapter 20. What was going on in John chapter 20? Well, by this time in John 20, verses 19 through 22, we see um, the disciples totally freaked out. It says in John 20, verses 19 through 22, it says the disciples were assembled in that upper room with the doors closed behind them, assembled for fear of the Jews. Which Jews? The Sanhedrin, Caiaphas the high priest, Annas the high priest, um, the very guys that crucified Jesus, the, the disciples were like, we're gonna be next. So they were hiding upstairs with the doors closed, shaking in their sandals, freaking out. But Jesus already said, guys, don't worry. Be of good cheer. Let not your heart be troubled. Like this is what Jesus told these guys, but they, they didn't listen. So now Jesus appears to them in John 20, 19. He all of a sudden appears in the room where they're freaked out. And he says, peace be unto you. And then he does something really strange. Jesus goes and breathes on them. What? Yeah, he breathes on them. And he said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, again, this shouldn't have been a shocker to them because Jesus already articulated in John 14, in John 16, he already told them what was gonna happen. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 14? He said, hey, it's good that I'm leaving you. He said, the Holy Spirit is with you, but he shall be in you. The Holy Spirit, the third part of the Holy Trinity of God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus teaches that there's three relationships we'll have with the Holy Spirit. First, before you're even saved, the Holy Spirit is with you. That is, before you were a Christian, you'd get that urging, that nudge, that tapping on your proverbial shoulder saying, you need to repent of your sins and be a Christian. And that's the Holy Spirit being with you. Now, one thing that's dangerous about this part of the Holy Spirit being with you is there's a point where the Holy Spirit will not always strive with you. Remember in Genesis chapter six, it says, the Holy Spirit will not always strive with man. If you reject the work of the Holy Spirit all your life and say, yeah, whatever, the tapping on your shoulder, every time you hear the gospel, every time you've gone to church, yeah, whatever, Christians are weirdos, I'm not gonna become a Christian. There's a point of no return where you will absolutely not be one of the chosen. You'll be divinely elected, not for heaven, but for eternal destruction. But you did that when you rejected the Holy Spirit with you. But Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is with you, but disciples, he shall be in you. When did the Holy Spirit get in the disciples? Different preposition. 
Well, it's right here in John 20, 19 through 22, when Jesus breathed on them. See, after he rose from the grave, this is the beginning of a whole new age called the church age. Who are the first members of the church? I believe it's John 20, 19 through 22, when suddenly, not only did the Holy Spirit with the disciples, but now after the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is now in the disciples because he breathes on them and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. But was that the end of the Holy Ghost story for those guys? Well, no. If you recall, Jesus then said, okay, now go to, go to Jerusalem, wait for me and the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter one, verse seven, if you recall, Jesus said, wait, and the power uh, of the Holy Spirit, and the word power there is the Greek word dunamis, where we get our word dynamite, boom. He says, the power of the Holy Spirit shall come, and then now we have the third preposition, shall come what, anybody? Upon you. So you, you had the Holy Spirit with you before you were saved. When you accepted Christ, the Holy Spirit's in you. And then he says, now, disciples, go and wait, and the Holy Spirit shall come with power upon you. And then Acts chapter two. The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. Remember the tongues of fire, speaking in tongues. And then Peter preached a sermon, the rest of Acts chapter two, that was so powerful that 3,000 people were saved in one day, hearing Peter's powerful sermon. This is the same Peter that had foot and mouth disease. This is the same Peter that didn't know what to say, and so he always said stuff. What, what was different between the Peter of the Gospels and the Peter of the book of Acts? I'll tell you what was different. God was doing a work with Peter. And ultimately, Peter became so useful when it was the Holy Spirit that came upon him, where he became effective. And he became the apostle Peter that we know that was one of the very strengths and pillars of the early church. Fast forward from John 20 to Acts chapter four. Uh, the, the story goes very different. If you remember in Acts chapter four, um, then Peter and James and John, now they're standing in front of the same guys they were totally freaked out about in John 20. Remember, for assembled of fear of the Jews, Caiaphas, Annas. In John, Acts chapter four, it tells us there that, um, that, that Peter, James, and John, they're standing before Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest. And they're saying, what are you guys doing healing this man? And all this stuff. And they're getting mad at Peter, James, and John. And Peter and those guys stand up and say, we do this under the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. What happened to the scaredy cat shaken in their sandal disciples? They were filled with the spirit. And they started moving in the power of God. And these guys that were just bumbling, stumbling disciples become these men that are bold and powerful. And they start speaking the truth. And, and, and they'd healed this guy. And the healed, the, the healed guy's standing there. And Peter, James, and John, they're all standing there. And the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, and Annas, they look at those guys. And the Bible says, they looked at them and said, they saw that they were unlearned and ignorant men. But they took note that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the impotent man that was healed, they could say nothing against it. Don't you love this? The bumbling, stumbling disciples were a work in progress. They hung out with Jesus. They learned from Jesus. But the sealing of the deal was when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And now they're no longer afraid. They're standing there. And I love the, 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 uh, the, the Sanhedrin even acknowledged they're unlearned and ignorant men. Do you remember? The Jews thought people from the region of Galilee were hicks. Um, I actually kind of like Hicks and stuff, uh, but it'd be like, you know, if you're there in uh, Cambridge University and suddenly somebody from the deep south of the United States, you know, those guys that are shooting alligators in the swamps, toot them, kidder, tell you what, darn tootin' there, like that guy shows up at Princeton University or Cambridge 
or Oxford or one of the, you know, and shows up and they're like, do you know, uh, do you know anything? Tell you what. It's like, that's the disciples. Remember when Peter spoke and they said, he's a Galilean, he speaks like a Galilean. You have to understand the Galileans, Jerusalem people thought those guys were backwoods hicks. And so that's what's going on here. Peter, James, and John are boldly speaking to these guys and they're like, wow, they're unlearned and ignorant men, but they took knowledge that they had been with Jesus. Don't you love this? You see, if you fast forward to Acts chapter five, those same Sanhedrin said, you guys stop using the name of Jesus. Stop spreading the word of Jesus around town. And what did Peter, James, and John say? They said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And you might be a bumbling fool and a bumbling idiot like me. And the world will say to you just what the Sanhedrin said, stop saying Jesus. Start using the right pronouns. Start doing this and start doing that and stop doing, and the world's just demanding, but the bold, the righteous, those that are filled with the spirit will say, we ought to obey God rather than men. I love how these disciples became very different people. Um, and uh, you know, if you hang out with Jesus, you'll become more like Jesus. Reminds me of David and his mighty men. How did the mighty men become mighty men? They weren't always mighty men. In fact, the story goes where David, he's hiding in a cave called a dulem, running from King Saul there in the Old Testament. And suddenly a bunch of losers show up. How do you know, bro? Well, the Bible tells us they were losers. All the men that were in debt, in distress, and discontented with life started gathering themselves to David. Losers. Now, when you're in debt, by the way, in those days, it didn't mean you just filed chapter 11. It meant that you were gonna go to debtor's prison. And so these guys were losers. They hang out with David. And pretty soon, these guys that hang out with David, what do they start doing? Well, the Bible tells us they became David's mighty men. Giant killers. There's one of the mighty men that ran up to a giant with a stick and took the stick and fought the giant with a spear and plucked the spear out of the giant's hand, turned his weapon on him and killed the giant with his own spear. One guy, Shammah, um, another guy, Eliezer, similar stories. Um, Eliezer already had a strike against, he was the son of Dodo, the Bible says. But they were given a field of beans to, to guard. Um, you know, David, can you imagine? Uh, I've got a job for you. Yes, sir. Shama reports to duty. Uh, see this field of beans? Could you stand here and guard that for us? Okay. Well, off goes the army and Shama's there, crickets, tumbleweeds blowing across the field of beans when suddenly a whole Philistine army comes marching right over the field of beans and Shama says, da, 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 stop marching on my field of beans. I'm guarding this. And they said, yeah, whatever. We don't give a hill of beans. Well, they didn't say that, but... But Shammah said, you're not gonna walk over my hill of beans. And he pulls out his sword and just starts whacking away and he wipes out the whole Philistine army by himself. How did he do this? Do you remember the ladies crying in the streets? David has killed his tens of thousands of soldiers. How did these guys become like David? Because they hung out with David. They became giant killers <coughs> because they hung out with a giant killer. Boy, that's so true. You become like who you hang out with. Have you ever noticed that? You that have friends and you start talking the same way and doing the same things. Um, well, these disciples had hung out with Jesus and the Sanhedrin said, we, we see them as unlearned and ignorant men, but they took note of them that they had been with Jesus. Um, so all that to say, why did Jesus pick these men? Number one, he saw them in their potential. Number two, they were, number two, a work in progress. And Jesus knew that. 
How good it is to realize that you and I, that we are just works in progress and how important it is for you to realize that about other people. You are a work in progress, but so is everybody else. I think we're so hard on each other to have high expectations for each other. And when we see failure or mistakes, we get all mad and upset at each other. But Jesus was one who saw the disciples in their bumbling goofiness. It's obvious Jesus saw that. Do you remember when Jesus was there asleep in the boat and the storm came and the disciples are totally freaking out. Oh Lord, they come down there and wake up. Don't you know, don't you care that we're gonna perish? Ah! And they're totally freaked out. And Jesus says, oh, have I been with you so long? Like you can tell Jesus like, oh, you guys are a work in progress. Watch this, be still, the storm stops. And they're like, wow, he even can control the wind and the waves. Um, they were a work in progress, but I love that Jesus stuck with them. He didn't bail on them saying, you guys are a bunch of losers. You don't even believe that I can calm a storm, whatever. He didn't do that. He knew that they were a work in progress. Um, and, I, and I love that about, you know, like that classic scripture that says, you know, speaking of his, you know, divine predestination and predetermined what we're gonna do. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 for we are his workmanship. That's the key word there, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, um, which God hath before ordained. Which God hath before ordained, that's predetermination, predestination. He before ordained that we would be his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, it says there, that we should do good works and should walk in those things. Uh, the word workmanship, the Greek word there is poema. I like to bring that up. And it's the word that, where we get our word poem, but it really means just a work of art, a work of art. And that explains a lot. I remember when I was a kid watching PBS and I remember thinking, why am I watching this? But I was mesmerized by the poofy hair of the painter. Do you guys remember? Bob Ross brought a picture of him for you young people. <laughs> who missed out on the beauty. Bob Ross with a big, that, you know, I just wanted to use him in like a paintbrush, like take his little hair and go, like it'd be great. But, um, but he, was, he was an interesting, did you know Bob Ross, that he was a drill sergeant. That was his career, he was screaming in guys' ears, ah! like that's what he did. But then he's, when he retired from the military, he finally said, I'm not gonna yell at anybody ever again. And, and he just sat there and talked about the mighty brush and he painted, and if you remember the story, but I remember as a kid watching this guy, he'd start with just his palette with goo on it. And then he, it was, it was, the thing that was so cool about this guy is somehow in 30 minutes, he could take a canvas that was empty, and, and it was funny, because he'd start painting, and, and you'd watch the first 20 minutes, like, how is he gonna finish this? Like, you just sit there going, how is it? It's just a bunch of smudges on a canvas, and how's it? But, but somehow, he'd sort of wrap it up in the last three minutes. It was like, and the picture looked like this. And you're like, how did he do that? And I, I do think of that old Bob Ross painting tutorials on PBS. Um, and I realized that's what the Lord does. We are his work of art. And it explains a lot when I look at this congregation, just blobs of goo, that's all we really are. <laughs> We don't have high expectations for blobs of goo, but in the hands of the creator, God, when he takes you and starts doing a work of art, the poema, where his workmanship predetermined, he already knows what he's gonna make out of you, but it's gonna be something good. He makes all things beautiful in his time, the scriptures say. And so sometimes I think we look at the work of art in the middle of the work of art, just when it's still goo and just a few streaks on a page. Um, this is why we need to not be so hard. We're a work hard on each other, we're a work in progress. So um, that's kind of interesting because 
The problem then becomes, once you start to see the work of art coming to fruition, maybe somebody who's been around longer and walking with the Lord, you start going, wow, that person. And then we start admiring the person, the work of art, and we forget where the glory actually belongs. That's where it starts getting a little bit problematic. Why did Jesus pick these men? It leads us to the third one. He saw them in their potential. He knew they were a work in progress. But the third reason I think he chose these disciples is because he would get all the glory. Nobody, no one can make the argument the reason Jesus was so successful is because he had an amazing team that he chose. It was really, you know, Jesus, he couldn't be like those NBA guys. Well, you know, it wasn't me, it was the team. <laughs> he can't say that. No, it was all me. Jesus, Jesus can say, it was all me. Um, in fact, they almost messed up the whole plan many times over, the disciples. Um, why did Jesus use people like that? Um, because he, he didn't want human flesh to get the glory for any good thing. And that's an important thing for you and for me to remember. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, where it says, Therefore you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, and not um, many mighty, not many noble are called. Now pause there for a second. Um, not mighty, not many noble are called. This explains, by the way, why you don't see very many hardcore sold out Christians in Hollywood or in the music industry or the things where we all look at all these famous, good looking, beautiful people. Oh, Brett, I know a Christian who's in Hollywood. No, it says not many. There might be, you might be able to find one. Good luck finding two, but, but not many. That exp explains a lot. Not many mighty, not many noble are called, but, verse 27, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised, God hath chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught, that's things which are nothing, to bring to nothing the things that are. And why does God do that? Choose the weak, the foolish, the base things of the world? This last phrase is the key, that no flesh should glory in his presence. No human flesh should glory in his presence. He chose the bumbling, fumbling, goofy disciples rather than going to Jerusalem and finding the intellectuals and the wealthy and getting his team together. Because those guys say, well, he's got a good team and that's why Jesus, no, he said, the reason I'm gonna use all of you weak and foolish is because no human flesh can take the credit. To God be the glory, that's the, that's the goal. I'm reminded of the Old Testament story there in Judges chapter seven. Do you remember when Gideon was called to lead uh, the Israeli army against the Midianites? The Midianites had like 175,000 soldiers. That's a huge army. Gideon only had 32,000 soldiers. And God says this to Gideon in Judges chapter seven, verse two. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest, here's why, Israel will vaunt themselves against me saying, mine own hand has saved me. Uh, you know, if they won by 32,000 against 175,000, they'd say, well, look at us, we're pretty amazing. So God says, there's too many, we're gonna thin this out. And so he, remember the story, he says, Gideon, tell the guys that are afraid to go to battle to go home. <laughs> 10,000 guys leave. Now you got 22,000 guys. Lord, uh, is that thin enough? Nope. Go to the river and get a drink. The guys that get on their bellies and slurp up water, send them home. The guys that sit on their knee and come and put water to their mouth, they get to stay. Okay, Lord, please don't let very many, please don't let many, please. And guess what? 300 guys were left. 300 guys against 175,000. 
Well, Brett, they must have been really skillful guys, right? You know what was required of them? All they had to do is stand on a hill and hold a pot and go, you know, I'd say even the most frail of you here at Athey Creek, if you're a senior citizen in your 90s, you could probably qualify for this job. Just go and and then you have to hold up a torch and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. That's all they had to do. And guess what? That's what won the battle. The Lord used 300 guys that didn't know what they were doing. They didn't have any, they weren't SEAL team members. They were just dudes that knew how to break a a vase. Um, I love this because the Lord says, I'm not gonna allow Israel to vaunt themselves. That's that last verse there, Israel, lest they vaunt themselves against me saying, it's my own hand that saved me, not so. You know, years ago, Athey Creek, when we were small and nobody knew about us, we were just in the school across the street and we were slowly growing and people kind of word of mouth. And it was such a good era because there were such low expectations. We were just, you know, who is that guy? Did he go to seminary? He didn't go to seminary? Oh, whatever, what does he know? And it was just kind of fun, you know, to, to kind of be at church saying, hey, let's go through the Bible together. And we don't have qualifications and we're not, you know, shiny or, or flashy. And, um, but as time's gone by, the church has grown, which gives it its own sort of weird legitimacy somehow, which is probably a, not necessarily a good thing. Just because a church is big does not mean it's legitimate. Um, but also, uh, it's funny how people kind of start making more of stuff. And, you know, we're just a bunch of blobs that the Lord's working. You're like, yeah, Brett. Um, why do people come to Athey? It's because of the chiseled pastor who's very good looking. Well, no, uh, that's not why people come here. And you know, what's, what's funny is the whole celebrity pastor, I'll tell you, if we've talked about this in the last past few weeks, because we see it all the time. And one of the quickest ways to make a ministry fail is for the ministry itself or the pastor himself or the team of pastors or whatever to start receiving the glory and credit. That's the quickest way to stop the work of the Lord. I think as Athey Creek has grown to be a giant church, that's probably one of the things we have to most care about is say, oh, to God be the glory. I hope everybody always remembers we're just a bunch of blobs of ink on a palette. And God's just saying, I'm gonna use you as long as Athey Creekers don't vaunt themselves against me saying, my own hath has saved me. Uh, watch out for that. One of the reasons I think he chose the disciples is because nobody can say, wow, it's because they were so awesome. It's because Jesus is awesome. The disciples were fools, goofballs. Why did he pick these men? Because they were qualified. Why were they qualified? Because they were foolish and ignorant. And guess what? That means you're qualified and so am I. I almost worry that we become, if we become qualified in the world's eyes, then that disqualifies us from ministry. Watch out for that. Which makes us land on a final question. If, why did Jesus choose these disciples? Well, it brings the question, really, why did he choose you? If you're chosen, why did he choose you? And why did he choose me? I think it's for the same reason he chose these 12 in our story here. The reason he chose these 12, well, He saw them in their potential, just like the Lord can see you in your potential. He knows that you're a work in progress. You might feel like a big smudge on a canvas right now with your life, but that's good because you're a work. The Lord can use that. And then because you and I are flawed and frail and foolish, the Lord says, "I I can use that because I will get the glory in your life. I hope if you're one of the chosen, if you are here saying, Brett, I am chosen, 
um, then understand that the Lord says, then I'm choosing you and I wanna use you like I use the disciples. Um, I love Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end or a future and a hope. That's one of the things about being chosen is we know we have a future with the Lord that he's gonna work out. Um, now you say, Brett, that's great for all of you chosen people, but what if I don't know if I'm one of the chosen? Well, we can find out right now by you choosing. Um, and if you say, well, I'm gonna do that then. I, what you have to do is you choose to believe God and you choose to say, I understand I'm a sinner and acknowledge your sin before God. That's what repentance is all about, to acknowledge your sin before God. And when you repent and then you say, okay, I repent for my sins and I accept that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for my sins, that he rose from the grave. And as I confess that and believe that, I'm taking the boarding pass and I'm checking in to get on the flight to heaven. That's the, you've been called, many are called, but few are chosen. How do I know if I'm chosen? If you get on board. That's why Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, you will be saved. So let's find out. If you're not sure if you're chosen, why would you wait and see? You know, oh, I don't wanna do that today. And I think that's weird. And uh, I don't know about all this. I don't like Christians. I don't like this or that. Uh, well, then maybe you're not chosen. That's the, the, the sad part of that. I'm always amazed what people, the excuses they make. I don't like Christians. Um, I heard an illustration the other day of a guy, and this strikes close to me as a guitar player and musician. I like, I like you know, playing guitar, but if you ever go into a guitar center, man, bring your Advil. Because there's always these young guys in there and they're trying to play the guitar and they're always playing like, you smoke on the water. Or, or trying to play Sweet Child it's like It's like, oh man, if I worked at a guitar center, man, I'd want to just shoot myself. But a person saying, I don't want to become a Christian because I don't like Christians. It's kind of the same thing of going to a guitar center. I hate music because I don't like guitar center guitar players. No, music is something amazing. Why? Because people who know how to do it and people, you know, and the truth is people are, are making the wrong judgment. I also liken it to people that have cancer, stage four cancer, like I'm not gonna go to the cancer center and be, you know, get help from medicine. Why not? I don't like people that have cancer. Why is the hospital full of cancer people? Uh, hello? The reason people that have cancer, uh, you may or not like them, but do you understand they're there because they need help? In the same way, you might use the excuse why you don't go to church or why you don't, don't like Christians or whatever. That's not the question God's asking. If you like wacko people like us, He's asking, will you accept the free gift of love from him? Don't make that mistake. And if you say, okay, I will give my heart and I will believe in Christ, then you'll be part of the chosen. Um, let's find out. Let's see if that's, if some of you, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're here in the room, but today is a great day to see if you've been chosen before the foundation of the earth. Would you bow your heads please with me as we close? And Christians, would you be in prayer? Um, and I'm just gonna invite you. If, if you're one who's wondering, am I chosen by God? Have I, am I gonna be saved? The way you make sure of that is to choose to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Jesus. 
Um, you choose that by, by just simply understanding you're a sinner. Repent of your sins. Acknowledge your sin before God. Lord, I've fallen short. I've made mistakes with my life. And I repent. I change my mind. That's the idea. And I'm gonna follow you. It doesn't mean you're perfect from this day forward. It doesn't mean you're gonna be amazing. It just means that you'll be amazingly forgiven for all your sins. And so I would say this, if you would wanna accept Christ and confess, I'd like to help you with that prayer. Pray the prayer of confession from Romans 10, verse nine and 10, to confess your belief and faith in Christ. If that's you, with everybody else's heads bowed, would you say, Brett, I wanna do that. I wanna accept Christ. So would you just look up at me and give me a quick wave? Let me acknowledge you. And, and as you do that, you're letting me know, Brett, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put God to the test if he chose me or not. And I know some of you are like, I don't know if I wanna do this. Brett's gonna make me do something weird. Nope, I'll just pray with you right where you are. If that's you, just acknowledge that right now. Anybody at all before we pack it up? I'm gonna look around just for a second. Way in the back, I see you there. Cool. Back there, good. Let me just look around right here. Good, and you? Good. Anybody else? Let me, don't, don't let me miss you, cool. I see you, good, good, good. And you back here, and you in the corner, that's awesome. Awesome. Right here, good. Back over there, awesome, I see you. Cool. I'm gonna pray this prayer of confession. And those of you that raised your hand, would you pray this with me? And I'm gonna ask the whole church to pray this out loud. We love getting behind you guys because we know what it's like to declare your faith and confess Christ. And, and, and it's such a glorious thing that God does. So let's, let's do this together. Pray this out loud with me. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose up from the grave and that all my sins are forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Lord, would you just lovingly wrap your kind and compassionate arms around these people who've just confessed you, Lord. Um, I pray that somehow they would just have a confirmation in their heart knowing that they're saved now by your grace through faith. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd, you'd bless them with just that joy knowing that we're on the road to heaven. We're on the flight because of what you've done. You're the one who's made it that to happen, Lord. So I pray that we'd be full of joy for the, the Christians who've been chosen, Lord. May we let our light so shine before all men. May people see a difference in us because we have the hope of heaven. Bless these, your people, as we go our way today. Thank you for this scripture and these reminders. In Jesus' name, amen.